Welcome all and welcome back to another edition of the Rock and Roll Bible. I am your host, Mr. Michael Devin, here to talk to you about all things rock and roll related for the first week of 2018. Crazy. 2018. Two years we're looking at 2020. Wow. I hope you all had a happy new year and uh, you celebrated to the full extent of the law. And uh, maybe broke a few laws. And uh, I hope you had a Merry Qui- Merry Christmas. <laughs> yeah, that's what I hope. You had a, a Merry Christmas. And a Happy Hanukkah. And uh, yeah, I had a very quiet holiday season this year, with the exception of Christmas. It was a madhouse. But uh, normally I am in uh, my hometown playing a New Year's Eve show. But uh, this year it was not meant to be. So... Uh, I ended up staying at home and uh, chilling with my lady and some friends, and uh, my liver certainly appreciated the uh, calm evening. And speaking of livers, I was just reading this crazy article about how this British surgeon has been carving his initials into the livers of patients he's been operating on, kind of like when you carve into the tree your initials plus who you love with a heart around it. <laughs> Simon Bramhall, a 53-year-old surgeon from Britain, has pleaded guilty to assault on his patients for branding his initials onto their organs during surgery, and he's going to be sentenced uh, sentenced this month in January. But uh, the uh, Associated Press reports that a prosecutor called the case, quote-unquote, without legal precedent in criminal law. Uh, Bramall used an argon beam coagulator, which basically seals uh, bleeding blood vessels with this electronic beam in it, and uh, it gets you all sealed up. This guy was using it to mark his initials um, on the organs, man. I mean, that's insane! He's tagging your liver like a graffiti artist. I would draw peace signs. (laughs) The Zoso symbol. Kilroy was here. Oh, you know, maybe the VH from Van Halen. I don't know. It's crazy. It's madness. All right, let's spark this thing up. Talking all things January 5th or the week thereof. Born this week, January 3rd in 1945, American singer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist, best known for his work with Buffalo Springfield and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Mr. Stephen Stills is born. Stills was born in Dallas, Texas, but uh, he was a military brat, so he moved around a lot, and he claims this is the reason why he developed such an interest in uh, blues and folk music. He's also heavily influenced by Latin music. Uh, He spent much of his youth not only in Gainesville and in uh, Louisiana, but Costa Rica, uh, the Panama Canal Zone, and he ended up graduating high school in El Salvador. He's actually the reason why um, uh, Peter Tork became a monkey. Um, They were old friends, and uh, Stills got in line for the cattle call um, for the monkey's audition. He had no intention of actually becoming a monkey. He didn't want to be a fake beetle on TV, as he said. But he had a bunch of songs written, and he figured, why not go and try to sell these tunes to this TV show? Maybe they'll be interested. They weren't interested, but uh, he did say on the way out, hey, I got a friend you might be into, and uh, his name is Peter Tork. 
And the rest is television history. Steven's a great songwriter, a great singer, and uh, has a lot of songs to his credit. Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, written for Judy Collins, who he had a relationship with from 69 to 70, I believe. And uh, he's also got uh, For What It's Worth with uh, Buffalo Springfield, Love the One You're With, and Treetop Flyer from his solo albums. But uh, I put my money on a band that he formed in 1971 with Chris Hellman, bassist and multi-instrumentalist of the band The Birds and uh, the Flying Burrito Brothers, a band called Manassas. self-titled debut album released in 1972 and uh, that song features uh, the Rolling Stones bassist Bill Wyman uh, who co-wrote the tune and uh, legend has it that uh, he loved playing with Manassas so much he threatened to leave the Rolling Stones to join the band it was an interesting time in rock when this album dropped in uh, early 72 uh, and the last song on the record entitled uh, Blues Man 
um, sort of expresses this end of an era, if you will, in rock music and, and the creative surge that was running through uh, the genre at the time because uh, Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison uh, had recently died as well as Dwayne Allman and uh, Jimi Hendrix and uh, uh, Stephen's good friend uh, Al Wilson uh, from Canned Heat. So there was a lot of death surrounding rock at this time and the, and the closing tune uh, is really beautiful and it kind of uh, encapsulates that feeling uh, with Stills uh, singing alone with an acoustic guitar and uh, he conveys uh, this feeling that this, you know, raging party of the 1960s has come to an end and he's alone with his guitar just sort of singing amongst the wreckage and uh this album is worth picking up manassas get it and also check out uh, on youtube there's a german tv production of manassas performing and it's good high quality stuff uh do yourself a favor you can listen to uh, mr stills uh get freaky on the wawa on the tune called jet set and i believe they do another one called treasure of the oneness all right moving on born this week january 3rd 1926 sir george martin the extraordinary beatles producer is born in highbury london england yes and uh, we all know george martin to be the fifth beatle and uh, his arrangement skills uh, and scoring skills uh, were really where his genius lay with the Beatles. Uh, George had a really strong sense of uh, orchestral music and uh, orchestral arrangements uh, that tended to elevate Beatles songs and even entire albums uh, from just what would be rock music to you know, rock standards. And uh, he was uh, a real genius, I think, and uh, really experimental. Uh, especially with the Beatles music. And he was really great at predicting hits. Uh, the Beatles' first recording session was uh, September 4th, 1962, and they recorded uh, How Do You Do It? And Martin thought that was a surefire hit, even though Lennon and McCartney didn't even want to release it uh, because it wasn't one of their own compositions. But uh, Martin was correct, and uh, the Jerry and the Pacemakers version, which uh, George produced, spent three weeks at number one, and the song that would knock it out of the number one position was also a George Martin production, The Beatles' From Me to You. So, uh, happy birthday, George Martin. And a most happy birthday to the man who single-handedly influenced me to pick up a bass guitar, as I'm sure he did countless other bass players. Born January 3rd, 1946, bass player of Led Zeppelin, Mr. John Paul Jones. <laughs>
Zeppelin 2. Jonesy's walking all over that track. Oh my God, it's my favorite. So innovative. In fact, uh, in 2014, Jones ranked first on uh, Paste Magazine's list of 20 most underrated bass guitarists, and uh, I agree. Jonesy was born John Richard Baldwin in uh, Sidcup, Kent, England. Started playing piano at the age of six, uh, learned from his father, Joe Baldwin, who was a pianist and arranger for big bands in the 40s and the 50s. Uh, I think the uh, orchestra was uh, Ambrose and his orchestra. It was a big, big band at the time. 
And uh, Jonesy's mom was also in the music business, and uh, the whole family would often perform together and tour around England as like this vaudeville comedy act. And so his musical education was quite deep. Uh, his earliest influences uh, uh, he cited as uh, the blues of uh, Big Bill Brunzi, the jazz of Charles Mingus, who incidentally this week passed away, uh, legendary jazz bassist Charles Mingus, and uh, the classical piano playing of uh, Rachmaninoff. John joined his first band called the Deltas at 15 years of age, and then he played bass for this jazz rock London group called the Jet Blacks, and uh, that had a very young John McLaughlin in it. So, uh, Jonesy's first big break came in 1962 when he was hired to play in the British group The Shadows, and he was in there for about two years. Uh, they had a number one hit with a tune called Diamonds, and uh, ironically, a tune that uh, his future bandmate Jimmy Page played on. And in 1964, at the recommendation of uh, Shadows musician uh, bandmate Tony Meehan, uh, Jones began studio session work uh, with Decca Records. And he worked there until about 1968. The dude played on hundreds of recording sessions. He played keyboards, he arranged a lot of music, and he was very much in demand. Uh, some of the artists he worked with, uh, the Rolling Stones, he did the uh, string arrangement on She's a Rainbow. Uh, Herman's Hermits, Donovan, he played on Sunshine Superman, uh, Hurdy Gurdy Man, uh, Mellow Yellow. He did work uh, with Jeff Beck, Cat Stevens, Rod Stewart, uh, Dusty Springfield. And it was when Jonesy worked on Sunshine Superman by Donovan that uh, Mickey Most, producer Mickey Most, started using his services uh, as, a, uh, as an arranger for a lot of uh, Mickey's projects. Tom Jones, Nico, Wayne Fontana. The Walker Brothers, all kinds of acts. I mean, Jonesy has a long, long list of uh, song credits. Um, in fact, he's quoted as saying, uh, I can't remember three quarters of the sessions I was on, end quote. But it was during his time as a session player that Jones adopted the name John Paul Jones. And uh, it was suggested to him by his friend uh, Andrew Lou Goldham. Uh, who had seen some poster for the movie John Paul Jones while he was in France. And he released his first solo recording as John Paul Jones called Baja. Uh, if you can find that, check it out. It was during the sessions, uh, all that working as a session musician, that he would cross paths with a very young Jimmy Page, who was also a fellow session musician and a veteran of the recording studios. Jimmy joined the Yardbirds in 66, and in 67, Jonesy contributed to the band's Little Games album. Uh, so they were working closely together, and it was around the time that uh, Page and Jones were working on Donovan's uh, Hurdy Gurdy Man sessions. Uh, Jonesy pulled Page aside at some point during a break and said, Hey man, if you can use a bass player in uh, the group you're forming, uh, let me have a go at it. And uh, Jimmy's quoted as saying, uh, Jonesy had a proper musical training, and he had quite brilliant ideas. I jumped at the chance of getting him in, quote. So enter vocalist Robert Plant and drummer extraordinaire John Henry Bonham, and you've got yourself a quartet that was initially dubbed the New Yardbirds to uh, make good on these Scandinavian dates that the Yardbirds originally had before imploding. And uh, that band, that quartet, would soon become known as Led Zeppelin, one of the biggest rock acts in rock history. And rightfully so. 
After the untimely death of John Bonham in 1980, uh, Jonesy collaborated with a bunch of artists, uh, R.E.M. and Jars of Clay, Hart, who else? Peter Gabriel, uh, Lenny Kravitz, the Foo Fighters, Brian Eno, the Butthole Surfers. Uh, you can see him um, in the video. Uh, uh, Paul McCartney's Give My Regards to Broad Street. And uh, in 2000 released uh, Zuma, which was his debut solo album um, on uh, Robert Fritz uh, label, DGM, I believe. Then a follow-up with uh, The Thunder Thief. Uh, he toured both these albums, actually, with uh, Nick Beggs, who's a great Chapman stick player. I don't know who else was in the band there, but... Um, you can hear Jonesy on the Foo Fighters album, In Your Honor. He plays mandolin on a song called Another Round. He plays piano on Miracle. Dave Grohl is quoted as saying, His appearance on that record is the second greatest thing to happen to me in my life. And uh, he produced uh, the Missions uh, album entitled Children. He produced the Dotson second album called Out of Sight, Out of Mind. And let us not forget his time in the supergroup Them Crooked Vultures with Dave Grohl and Josh Homme of Queens of the Stone Age fame.
off of the self-titled debut album from Them Crooked Vultures, released in 2009. John Paul Jones on bass. I love Jonesy. Who's better than Jonesy? I mean, McCartney, okay. We can make these arguments, but uh, god damn John Paul Jones. Uh, he's amazing. And not only does he play bass so well, he plays organ. He plays guitar, koto, lap steel, mandolin, auto harp. Violin, I believe he plays, ukulele, sitar, cello, recorder, and if you pick up the album by Jeff Beck entitled Truth, which you should pick up, you should have that uh, in your discography because it's a historical rock album, uh, there's a tune on there called Beck's Bolero, and uh, Jeff Beck was still in the Yardbirds at the time, but he was trying to test the waters of a solo career, went into the studio in 1966, he cut his first single, and a uh, friend and bandmate, Jimmy Page, served as the producer, even though Mickey Most uh, ended up with the credit. But uh, Pagey played 12-string guitar on it, and for the rhythm section, uh, Pagey got uh, Keith Moon of the Who fame and John Paul Jones on bass. Uh, and many argue that this little combo on Beck's Bolero gave birth to not only the concept for Led Zeppelin, but also the name because at some point while in the studio, someone suggested that these guys should all be in a band, and Moon uh, was said to have quipped, that would go over like a lead balloon, this offhand comment that uh, Pagey kind of put in the back of his mind and uh, eventually would spark the genesis of Led Zeppelin. Happy birthday, John Paul Jones, all over again. I love you. And speaking of Led Zeppelin, it was this week in 1976 that uh, Zeppelin lead singer Robert Plant walked for the first time following uh, a really horrible car crash in Greece uh, a year prior. And uh, he wasn't sure if he was ever going to walk again. In fact, he sang the entire Presence album while in a wheelchair. All right, moving on. This week in 1967, The Doors released their debut self-titled album, which quickly hits the number one spot in the U.S. with the single Light My Fire. What's funny about that song is uh, it was written by Robbie Krieger. And uh, at 20 years old, having never completed a song before as a writer, uh, he composed Light My Fire and it became a number one smash hit and still continues to kind of uh, evoke this summer of love sensuality when you hear it um talk about beginner's luck for robbie krieger man but uh, he would go on to write all kinds of great songs for the doors and uh incidentally to promote the album jack holtzman and electra records purchased what would be the very first rock billboard uh in history you can see uh photos of the famous billboard uh which loomed over sunset strip and uh, it read, Break On Through, with an electrifying new album uh, by The Doors. And uh, they actually did a little photo shoot up there. There's also some photos of that uh, floating around. But um, right before the debut album uh, that was released on Elektra, uh, The Doors uh, were uh, dropped from this uh, preliminary uh, contract with Columbia Records uh, without any warning. And so uh, they were struggling financially. Uh, they took this gig at, uh, uh, what was it called, Parthenon Pictures. Um, 
and played sort of like Muzak, you know, incidental music for a Ford Motor Company, a customer service training film uh, entitled Love Thy Customer. And you can actually watch this on YouTube. Look it up. The Doors from uh, 1966, a Ford training film. Um, I think Jim's playing bongos. But you can actually hear echoes of uh, some tunes that would later become Doors uh, standards, like uh, I Looked at You and uh, even the Soft Parade. Before you slip into unconsciousness, I'd like to have a Another kiss, another flashing chance at bliss, another kiss, another kiss. The days are bright. And filled with pain Enclose me in your gentle rain The time you ran was Too insane We'll meet again We'll meet again Sinatra, The Crystal Ship, off of The Doors' debut self-titled album. It was January 5th, 2005, that Danny Sugarman, uh, who was the second manager for The Doors, uh, who wrote a number of books about the band, uh, died of lung cancer. He was aged 50. And uh, also this week, literally this week, January 4th, 2018, the unveiling of a new street sign at the intersection of Densmore Avenue and Morrison Street was unveiled uh, in uh, the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles, uh, in Encino, actually, if anyone is interested in taking a drive by. I saw a photo of uh, John Densmore out there um, for the unveiling. January 4th also marks the uh, annual Day of the Doors celebration, uh, where 
Los Angeles honors uh, arguably LA's greatest rock band. Uh, this year is the second annual. So uh, congratulations to uh, Robbie Krieger and John Densmore. This week in 1968, Jimi Hendrix spends a night in a Swedish jail after trashing his hotel room. Uh, apparently, he got in a bad fight with bassist Noel Redding and ended up trashing Mitch Mitchell's room, his drummer. Uh, there's an excerpt from a book, uh, uh, All That's Left to Know About the Voodoo Child, I was reading. It's just basically like a, an FAQ. And uh, Jimmy had uh, taken some whiskey that night, and uh, apparently he did not do very well with whiskey. It brought out the demons. Uh, he ended up trashing the room. Uh, allegedly, the only thing left that uh, was uh, not demolished was the telephone. And Mitch Mitchell had to sit on his chest uh, to calm him down. By the time cops arrived, uh, he was passed out on the bed. He was taken to a hospital, uh, and his hand was treated uh, for uh, some minor cuts after smashing the window. Uh, he offered to pay all the damages when he sobered up, but I believe it was uh, his manager, Chaz Chandler, who actually paid the hotel. The hotel never did press charges against him, but uh, you can hear in one of these songs that was uh, released uh, posthumously, uh, it was entitled My Friend, and uh, he sings, I just got out of a Scandinavian jail. Uh, now you know what that's in reference to. This week in 1970, the Who's Keith Moon accidentally runs over his chauffeur, Neil Boland, and kills him. Uh, apparently, Moon's car was under attack from some unruly teenagers. I do believe that they were actually skinheads. And uh, when Bolin jumped out to get them to move, Moon panicked, jumped behind the wheel to drive the car away himself. He was not a good driver. Uh, but unfortunately, the crowd had already pushed Bolin under the car. And when Moon took off, he, uh, he rolled over him and killed him. And... Uh, Moon took that very hard. He loved Neil Boland. Uh, he drove him everywhere in all of his drunken uh, mad nights, uh, rolling along in his plush Rolls Royce. And it was also this week, January 3rd in 1970, four days after learning that the movie Let It Be would be released in theaters, that McCartney, Harrison, and Ringo uh, meet at Abbey Road Studios to record I Me Mine for the film and the soundtrack. They were quite concerned they didn't have enough material uh, to create the soundtrack that they were looking for. You can tell just by watching the film how exhausted everybody is, how sick of each other they are, especially Paul and, and George. Uh, they get into a few rows that were captured on film, and uh, I think George ends up leaving uh, or wanting to quit um, because the whole thing was a shambles really I love it I'm a Beatles fan um, anybody who's a Beatles fan loves the movie let it be it's a real inside view on uh, the process songwriting process uh, of the Beatles it should have been called uh, Paul McCartney's Let It Be. I think that's what uh, John Lennon once said, or maybe George Harrison once said. Speaking of the Beatles, it was uh, this week in 1969 that police confiscated a shipment of John Lennon and Yoko Ono's album Two Virgins at the uh, Newark airport out in Jersey, Dirty Jers, uh, deeming the cover which uh, shows the couple naked to be pornographic. 
Two Virgins is basically experimental music. It's uh, the first of a trilogy that uh, Lennon and Ono created together. Uh, the first one, uh, with a with a nude on the cover, was uh, recorded at John's home in Kenwood while he was still married uh, to Cynthia Lennon, but she was on holiday in Greece. Um, and uh, it's, you know, I'm not a fan of it personally, and I don't really know anybody who is. Um, it's just kind of a lot of uh, tape loops and, uh, I don't know, noise. Um, uh, in fact, actress uh, Sissy Spacek, uh, while under the pseudonym of Rainbow, recorded a song called John, You Went Too Far This Time, uh, in response to the album's cover art. In order to sell the album, um, they ended up putting it in a, uh, a brown paper bag where you could only see uh, the heads of, uh, and that is the craniums of John Lennon and Yoko Ono. And uh, apparently it took him about six months to convince the other Beatles uh, to release this album because he still was a member of the Beatles, mind you. And Apple Music was still a corporation run and owned and operated by the Beatles. Lennon commented that the uproar over the album cover seemed to have uh, less to do with the explicit nudity and more to do with the fact that the pair were, quote-unquote, rather unattractive. He described it later as a picture of, quote, two slightly overweight ex-junkies. <laughs> All right, moving on. This week in 1978, two months after quitting the band, Ozzy Osbourne rejoins Black Sabbath. In uh, late 77, relations within Black Sabbath broke down, and uh, Ozzy ended up leaving the group. He was boozing. He was doing a lot of blow. I think everybody was doing a lot of blow. It was the 70s. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? But uh, he split, and so Tony Iommi recruited his old uh, Birmingham buddy, Dave Walker. And they actually recorded some material for Sabbath's uh, eighth album, which would be entitled Never Say Die. And uh, Tony Iommi was quoted as saying, we were grasping at straws, really, uh, when he talks about that time. And he says, uh, you know, we had to write an album, and we had a studio booked, and we had no singer. So Sabbath played this early version of uh, Junior's Eyes uh, with Dave Walker, on a TV show in 1978, and you can actually check that out. It's uh, up on YouTube. It sounds really unusual uh, if you're very familiar with the song Junior's Eyes, if uh, you're familiar with the album Never Say Die, check out Dave Walker's version. It sounds completely different. But uh, when Ozzy came back into the band, um, he wanted to write, rewrite the whole album, basically. Uh, but Junior's Eyes survived. There was a couple of tunes that actually survived uh, that time. But uh, So they gave Walker the boot. Ozzy returns to Sabbath and uh, before leaving once again. Uh, and you can watch them also do the title cut, Never Say Die, on Top of the Pops in 
Sabbath from 1978's Never Say Die, the title track, Never Say Die. I'm very fond of that album. Uh, it uh, reminds me of a very specific time in my life, and even though it might not be what people consider to be uh, the best of Black Sabbath, uh, it definitely holds a place uh, in my heart. And uh, there's some good songs on there. Air Dance and Hard Road and Over to You, Swing in the Chain, and, uh, and that tune, Never Say Die, Black Sabbath, 1978. Also this week in 1978, January 4th, marks the start of the Sex Pistols' final tour. Their first gig started in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And it actually ended not much later, January 14th, 1978, uh, at the Winterland in San Francisco. Kind of ironic how it's that uh, Winterland, which is known for being the hippie haven, and uh, the Sex Pistols, who embodied uh, punk rock, uh, basically died there that night with the uh, infamous... Uh, Statement made by Johnny Rotten, a.k.a. John Lydon. <laughs> Ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Good night. Ever get the feeling you've been cheated, says Johnny Rotten to the crowd. Good night and goodbye. But uh, in his uh, autobiography uh, called Rotten, No Irish, No Blacks, No Dogs, Fantastic book. Pick it up if you haven't read it. It's so good, whether you like the pistols or not. But in that book, he wrote that he felt cheated. And, uh, quote, I felt cheated and I wasn't going to go on with it any longer. It was a ridiculous farce. The whole thing was a joke at that point. And so Rotten left the Sex Pistols before even returning to the UK. And uh, in an attempt to distance himself from the punk rock scene, he uh, began going by his real name, John Lydon and uh, ultimately resurfaced uh, with a groundbreaking project entitled uh, Public Image Limited PIL. Pick up some of that if you've never heard of it. Never mind the bullocks by the Sex Pistols. Definitely goes down on my list as one of the greatest rock albums ever produced. <laughs> Thank you. 
bodies off of Nevermind the Bullocks, Here's the Sex Pistols, released in 1977. A very turbulent and short-lived band, the Sex Pistols. Uh, forming in London in 1975 and ending in 1978, so just over two and a half years, producing one album, four singles, but still managing to become one of the most influential acts in popular music. And uh, Sid Vicious, if you think about it, joined the band in February of 77, and uh, after uh, the original bass player Glenn Matlock left, and I believe he left because of the lyrics to God Save the Queen. He felt that it was a little too extreme and too fascist. So he split Income Sid, and uh, by February of uh, 79, he was uh, dead of a heroin overdose. He was 21 years old. And speaking of musicians who have battled heroin addictions and left us way too soon.
warned of the danger You can laugh and joke with friends But don't you ever talk to strangers
Emotional Wreck off of Soundgarden's 1994 release, Super Unknown. I play that because this week in 2010, Chris Cornell tweeted that Soundgarden, who had been split up since 1997, were getting back together again. On January 1st, 2010, Cornell tweeted, uh, quote, The 12-year break is over and school is back in session. Sign up now. Knights of the Sound Table right again, quote. And the message was actually linked to this website that uh, had a picture of the band. And if you entered your email address, uh, you not only got updates on the reunion, but uh, you unlocked a video for the song uh, entitled Get on the Snake, which was uh, off of Soundgarden's second studio album, uh, 1989's Louder Than Love. It's incredibly sad that we lost Chris Cornell last year. Way too soon. Way too young. He battled his demons, much like Phil Linnett of Thin Lizzy, who we just heard uh, performing Wild One off of Thin Lizzy's album Fighting from 1975. January 4th, 1986, Phil Linnett, founding member, principal writer, lead vocalist, bassist of Thin Lizzy, died um, after a long battle with heroin addiction and alcohol. He was 36 years old. Born in England, but raised in Ireland. Phil always considered himself to be Irish and was quite proud of that. And uh, not many people know, but uh, he published two volumes of poetry in the 70s. And uh, they were based predominantly on his lyrical writings, Forth and Lizzie. Um, and then in the 90s, the two books were eventually combined. And uh, the title of the book is uh, Songs for While I'm Away. Another little interesting fact about Phil is that in 1985, he was working with members of uh, The News and Huey Lewis. Um, that music has never been released. I am curious to hear that. I'd love to hear Phil Linnett jamming with Huey Lewis and The News. That could be cool. All right, I am out of here. I have taken up way too much of your time today. It's a long podcast. I hope you enjoy it. It's a new year, new bands, new music, new albums. Get out there, see some shows, buy some albums, don't steal them, and buy it on vinyl if you can because it sounds delicious. I'm leaving you with Jerry Rafferty, who passed away January 4th, 2011, wrote one of the best songs ever to hit radio. All the best to everyone for 2018. Happy New Year.
Some 